You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 22nd, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. Australia is undergoing one of the most interesting and active energy transitions in the world, but outside of Oz, not too many people know much about it. So, with the encouragement and assistance of Misha and David, both Aussie subscribers to the show, we're going to correct that in this episode. With incredibly abundant solar and wind resources that it has only begun to exploit, and equally abundant coal resources that have led to its having the second dirtiest grid in the world after Estonia, Australia might as well be the global poster child for the importance and potential of energy transition. And thanks to the fact that it's an island too far away from the mainland to rely on any long-distance transmission to balance its grid, it has to be self-sufficient. So at the same time, it has the largest percentage of homes with rooftop solar of any country in the world. So it offers an excellent test bed for balancing a grid with a high share of distributed and variable wind and solar while phasing out large coal plants. It also offers a view in sharp relief of a national dialogue about the future of its energy supply that is as political as you'll find anywhere, with greens and browns engaged in a very acrimonious debate. To help us understand this complex picture, we'll be speaking today with Dr. Jenny Reese, a principal at the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AMO. AMO is responsible for operating Australia's largest gas and electricity markets and power systems, including the National Electricity Market, or NEM, which covers Australia's eastern and southeastern seaboard, and the Wholesale Electricity Market, or WEM, which covers a separate power system in Western Australia. As Australia's independent energy markets and power systems operator, AMO provides critical planning, forecasting, and power systems information, security advice, and services to its stakeholders. Dr. Reese is in the Future Power Systems Security Program, working on adapting AMO's processes and functions to ensure ongoing security and reliability as the power system transitions to renewables. She leads the work program on technical matters such as frequency control, analysis on declining inertia, and possible solutions such as fast frequency response. She also examines the future need for frequency control ancillary services, such as regulation, to manage increasing variability and uncertainty from variable generators like wind and solar. She has researched grid power and high-penetration renewable power systems extensively and published many peer-reviewed papers at the University of New South Wales and elsewhere, and she previously worked with several consultancies advising transmission network system providers, the independent market operator of Western Australia, and AMO. She's an amazing expert on Australia's power markets, and it's a real pleasure to have her on the show. And in this episode's news segment, we'll discuss some disturbing climate news out of the Arctic permafrost, a new solar project that will be the largest to date in Australia, investments that the American state of Ohio will be making to support autonomous vehicles on its highways, a new LNG lithium-ion hybrid cargo ferry in Canada, 
the beginning of Saudi Arabia's renewable energy investment program, and a proposed settlement to a long-fought battle over rooftop solar compensation in Arizona. But first, we'll talk with Dr. Jenny Reese. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Jenny, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. So let's start with some basic details because I don't think too many folks outside of Australia really know much about the grid there. How are the interconnections and the wholesale markets set up? So AEMO operates the national electricity market, the NEM, which is the grid that spans the whole east coast of Australia from far north Queensland right round the coast down to Adelaide. It's about 5,000 kilometres worth of grid. And that covers about 75 to 80% of the electrical load in Australia. We also operate a completely separate grid on the west coast, the southwest interconnected system that's around about 10% of the electrical load in Australia. And those two grids are completely separate from each other. There's no interconnection between them. To give you a bit of a sense of scale, the NEM on the east coast is about 200 terawatt hours of energy delivered each year and about a peak demand of around 35 gigawatts. And it's five minute spot market with five pricing regions that correspond to each of the five states. Okay. This is an interesting situation then. You've actually got, between the east and the west side of Australia, essentially, you've got two completely separate grids. Yeah, that's right. And they actually run with quite different rules at the moment too. They're really very separate grids and no interconnection between them at all. If I'm recalling correctly, the western Australian grid actually has both an energy only and a capacity market, whereas the NEM actually is just an energy only market. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's an energy only market in the NEM. And in the Swiss, they do have a capacity mechanism with their market, although they're going through a reformation of their market as well, looking at changing those rules. I think they're retaining the capacity market design, though. Right. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I just kind of wanted to give people the lay of the land so they understand the situation here. It's sort of analogous to Texas versus the East and the West in the United States, where there's really no grid connection between the Texas grid and the Eastern interconnection or the Western interconnection. Well, it's even more so than that because ERCOT, uh, the Texas market, is connected through DC links at least, whereas there is absolutely no connection. There's no DC links even between the Swiss and the NEM. It's a very, very long distance. There's actually a good bit of sort of empty land in between those two, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. The Nullarbor yeah. Plain is a very large desert in between. Right. Okay. So Australia has one of the greatest mineral endowments of any country on earth, including the fifth largest economically recoverable black coal reserves. And so it's probably no wonder that about three quarters of Australia's power was produced by coal-fired power stations in 2008. So is that still about the right number, about three quarters still provided by coal? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And, and how much of the grid power is currently being provided by wind and solar? We get about 5% of our energy from wind. We've got about 3.8 gigawatts of wind installed. From solar, we've got only quite a small amount of utility scale solar, about 240 megawatts of that installed. So it's a small player at the moment, but we expect it to grow a lot. Rooftop PV in our system is large though. We have about 4.8 gigawatts of rooftop photovoltaics, and that's now delivering around 2% of energy. So it's about 7% of energy overall from wind and PV. But but that development has been concentrated in the South Australia region of our grid. And so South Australia is now running at something like 42, 43% of energy coming from wind and photovoltaics, mostly rooftop PV. So that puts it on the leaderboard, I guess, in terms of regions with high renewables in the world. 
I was going to say, I mean, that's got to be one of the highest percentages of rooftop solar of any country in the world. Yeah, yeah. And the international reports that compare, you know, who's leading in various aspects. Uh, Australia really is out there with the rooftop PV. Wow. Okay. With this situation being very coal heavy, Australia is still one of the most ambitious countries in energy transition that offers some of the most generous subsidies of any country for solar and wind generators, which has actually produced quite a rapid deployment of those renewables, along with a pretty rancorous debate. In fact, Ian Verender, the business editor of ABC, that's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, not our ABC over on this side of the pond, recently wrote an op-ed, which I'll link to in the show notes, in which he said flatly, The simple truth is that despite entertaining theater of insults in the national capital, Australia's future power needs overwhelmingly will be provided by renewables and gas. Coal-fired generators have no future in Australia. Wow, that's a pretty categorical statement. So how and why did one of the most coal-dependent countries on earth become one of the most progressive on energy transition? Yeah, look, I would say that the energy space is very hotly debated in Australia. And the policy in this space is still very uncertain. So we've had a lot of battles on that political front. And that makes it challenging, actually, for the sector to have that uncertainty, particularly for our planning processes and really understanding where things are going. I imagine, yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of the subsidies, and there's sort of two aspects of it. There's the subsidies that are around rooftop photovoltaics, which really drove a lot of investment in that, particularly early on. And then we've had different incentives for the large-scale renewables. Most of that has been through a renewable energy target scheme, which it's a certificate scheme. So renewable generators get kind of a top-up on their energy revenues through the sale of those green certificates, and retailers have an obligation to purchase those. So it may be a little bit analogous to the ROC scheme in uh, the UK? I'm not terribly familiar with the UK scheme, but yeah, a certificate scheme where they're trading of those certificates. So the price can fluctuate. There's a renewable obligation with the certificate that gets purchased by the utilities and so on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the price can fluctuate quite a lot. And that scheme does appear to be tracking on despite that policy uncertainty. We're still not entirely sure what will come after that, but Australia has made some fairly substantial commitments through the COP21 meetings in terms of emissions reduction. And so in our planning processes, we've been directed to incorporate those carbon reduction targets and look at what the transformation of the energy sector might be in achieving those. Hmm. Okay. I guess we could just got to go right to the big newsworthy item that everyone wants to talk about. The South Australian grid had a blackout event on September 28th of 2016 which has become rather famous, really. This so-called black system event caused a power loss for all of South Australia, which has about 850,000 customers and 1.8 gigawatts of demand. And then on February 8th of this year, 2017, there was another major blackout. And I suppose it's unsurprising that most people seem to see in the blackouts a confirmation of their priors. Those who hate wind and love coal blamed the wind turbines that shut down because wind provides about 40% of... South Australia's grid power, while those who love wind and hate coal blame the conventional capacity. So these events have really triggered a national debate about the security and reliability of Australia's electricity system. 
especially as the country continues to move to these higher penetrations of variable renewable energy. So AMO has issued several reports examining exactly what happened during the September blackout, and we're starting to get a bit of early information about the February blackout. And Australia's chief scientist, I understand, is also currently conducting a review of the events as well. And I'll link to all those reports in the show notes, but can you explain a bit about exactly what happened in those blackouts? Yeah, sure. So there's an important distinction between the blackout, which was the event on the 28th of September, which was a system black for the whole of the South Australia region, versus the events on the 8th of February, which were a load shedding event. So that wasn't a complete blackout of the state. It was a shedding of a portion of the load, which was then brought back on relatively quickly. So very Ah, different scale of events for those two. For the Black System event, which I think is the one that really made the news around the world, the sequence of events that happened, first of all, there was very severe weather and it included tornadoes in that storm that hit the state. And those were in excess of the forecast. The forecast didn't include the tornadoes and the wind speeds were in excess of what we had anticipated. And those very high wind speeds led to the loss of three transmission lines in the power system. Uh, there was, we believe, probably two tornadoes that almost simultaneously damaged two of the 275 kV lines, about 170 kilometers apart. And as that happened, it caused multiple faults on the power system. So we saw six major voltage dips in a period of about two minutes. And that was seen across most of the South Australian state by the wind farms, particularly. And it triggered protection systems on those wind farms, which it turned out were counting the number of faults that they were exposed to in a certain duration of time and tripped off the system when it exceeded those preset limits. So that led to the loss of about 456 megawatts of wind from nine different wind farms in a duration of less than seven seconds. So when we lost the wind farms, that very substantial amount of generation from those wind farms in a very short window of time, that led to an increase in the flows over the interconnector, the, the AC Haywood interconnector, which connects South Australia to Victoria. And that led to a loss of synchronism between the two ends of the line, the Victoria and South Australia, because it exceeded the limit that that line can operate at. So that synchronism protection on the line operated as it is supposed to, to protect that asset and tripped out the line. What happened then was we have a very large contingency. We lost 890 megawatts with the original generation plus the flows on the interconnector in a power system that only had about 3000 megawatt seconds of inertia in South Australia. And that led to a rate of change of frequency of about six hertz per second. So the frequency basically dropped extremely fast and it was too fast for the under-frequency load shedding mechanisms to work because the frequency is dropping that gets sensed by relays in the system to trip off loads and try and rebalance the system. But when the frequency is dropping that quickly, those relays can't operate successfully in the right order. So it went straight through the under-frequency load shedding into system black. Wow. Great explanation. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds to me basically like there was an unexpectedly severe sequence of events that tripped off a number of safety mechanisms. And then there was sort of a cascading series of faults and shutdowns that resulted from that. And in that sense, it sort of reminds me of 
the famous blackout that we had about a decade ago in this country where it took out most of the eastern seaboard and, and part of Canada. It was, it was sort of a cascading series of protective faults that led to a very widespread blackout. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. There was a whole series of fairly extreme things going on all at the same time. And all of these were basically outside the bounds of what was normally expected in your system planning scenarios. Yeah. And I would say most importantly, the protection systems that were on those wind farms counting faults was a system that we didn't actually know was there. We had not been advised by those wind farms that they had that protection. And in fact, the wind farm owners hadn't known that either. They had to go back to the manufacturers and find out what had happened, what this protection system was. And it's something where we've been talking to other system operators from particularly Ireland and other places where they've got a lot of wind energy. And they've echoed this sentiment that they didn't know that that protection existed either. So it's something that is in the realm where we're dealing with quite new technologies here and they've got software controls that are very, very sophisticated and there are these hidden bugs. Mm. Or hidden features, as the case may be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And those protection systems are there to protect the equipment in very right. extreme events, which this was. Right. Okay. So what can we learn from these blackout events? I mean, recognizing that... We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. We're extending our launch special through the end of March, so monthly subscriptions are priced at just $5 a month, the same price as our annual subscriptions, which are $60 a year. And you can keep that monthly rate as long as you remain a subscriber, just 5 bucks a month. So be sure to join before March 31st when the monthly price for the subscription increases to $10. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. And for those who don't want to sign up for a recurring payment plan, you can also just buy a single episode for just $7. Look for the Buy Single Episode button on the page for that show. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, Energy Transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Lyndon Rive, Tesla's vice president for energy products and Elon Musk's cousin, stepped into the fray over South Australia's power predicament on March 9th, saying that Tesla could solve South Australia's power woes within 100 days of being asked with the output of its new lithium-ion battery Gigafactory in Nevada. Rive estimated that 100 to 300 megawatt hours of batteries would be enough to prevent future blackouts and said that Tesla could produce that much and get it installed and running within 100 days. Mike Cannon-Brooks, an Australian software billionaire, tweeted that if Musk and Rive were serious about the claim, that he would be willing to try to make it happen on the financial and political end, and followed that up with another tweet saying, We don't need more gas peaker plants or ridiculous clean coal. Let's solve it with software and innovation. Musk tweeted back, Tesla will get the system installed and working 100 days from contract signature or it is free. That serious enough for you? To which Cannon-Brooks replied, You're on, mate. Give me seven days to try to sort out politics and funding. 
DM me a quote for approximately 100 megawatts cost. Mates rates. Musk offered $250 per kilowatt hour at the pack level for systems of 100 megawatt hours or larger. And Cannon Brooks estimated that the total price tag will be at least $200 million, an amount that certainly seems within the realm of possibility for the likes of Cannon Brooks and his network. Aside from the sheer braggadocio of the exchange and the novelty of working out a deal of this size and nature with just a few tweets, which guaranteed press coverage, what struck me about it is Tesla's confidence that it could produce that much battery capacity that quickly and at that price, when recent lithium-ion battery prices for the EV market have been closer to $300 a megawatt hour. This is truly a new world, and it is moving fast. If this deal actually comes together, it would not only blow every expectation for lithium-ion battery production and installation out of the water, it would likely radically reshape the calculus and the politics around South Australia's grid planning. Item 2. Researchers with the Northwest Territories Geological Survey have found that 52,000 square miles of Arctic permafrost in Northwest Canada are thawing and in rapid decline due to climate change. The area the size of... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.